An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hello, welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson. Join me uh, front row at uh, a horse show of some kind, a polo match. I don't know what we're watching, but we're front row. We've got our Harrods gift bag. It's Mallory Rubin and yours truly. Hello, Mallory Rubin. How are you? I just can't believe I have functioning Wi-Fi out here on Britannia, the royal yacht. (laughs) We're here to talk about The Crown, episodes one through three. So, you know, if you're looking for a preview pod of The Crown, that already happened. That's earlier in the feed, earlier in the week. You can go listen to that. If you're looking for an episode that covers all of The Crown, that's coming later in the week. What you're here right now for is coverage of episode one, Queen Victoria Syndrome, episode two, The System, and episode three, Moo Moo. If you have not watched those three episodes, this is not the podcast for you. Press pause, go watch them, come back, listen to us talk about them, all right? We're breaking down the crown sort of in these little chunks. We'll be back with episodes four through six, and then also seven through 10. That's the plan for covering the season of television. Um, Elsewhere in the feed, of course, you can find... I was talking about Interview with a Vampire. I did an episode with Charles about that. Bill and I will be covering The White Lotus every week on Sundays. There's a couple episodes of those up so that you can listen to. And then, of course, um, I always recommend you go back and listen to Van and Charles talk about Atlanta, the season of Atlanta. It's just really incredible stuff. All kinds of goodies on the Prestige TV podcast feed. But this is a Netflix binge week, which means Mallory and I are here for you, beat after beat, to cover The Crown Season 5. Mallory Rubin, overall, how are you feeling about The Crown Season five, before we get into these episodes. Oh, overall, I'd say it's a 
delight to be back in the crown verse because I love (laughs) the crown and I'm very excited to cover season five of the crown with you and talk about the crown with you. Season five is definitely a little bit more uneven than the prior seasons. No question about it. Some high highs, some uh, stretches that don't land quite as well. But we're in a time period that we are all a little bit more familiar with than some of the more distant history of the prior seasons. So it's a new experience, Joe. How about you? How have you how have you felt about season five so far? I feel very similarly, like a very mixed bag for me. Some of my favorite stuff. um, And I've said, you know, in our preview episode and on Twitter, like the thread through the season of the media and like, you know, the 90s is so famous for its tabloid journalism. And and we are having such a moment now going back and looking at tabloid journalism of the 90s and early aughts and how it impacted people like Monica Lewinsky or, you know, people associated with the O.J. Simpson trial or Britney Spears. And so like Diana and Charles and all the rest are a perfect subject for us to think about, have a reckoning with how we consume news uh, at that time and, and how we feel about it now. So I think the media stuff is of particular interest to me. We get um, biographers and, you know, TV interviews and discussion of the state of BBC at the time and all that sort of stuff is sort of peppered throughout. So I find that consistent theme to be really interesting. It's just like sometimes, sometimes an episode hits and sometimes it doesn't. And that's just sort of where I am with this season. Um, in this pack of episodes, I would say there's like an episode that really doesn't work for me. And then also, I think my favorite episode of the season. So it's just like, you know, a real, a real grab bag in one through three here. We're going to go, if you have no objections, episode by episode and just give, you know, this is a sprightly little hour we're going to spend on three episodes of television. So we're going to do our best. <laughs> we usually and- spend three hours on one episode <laughs> of television. What a quest. <laughs> um, and uh, at the end, we're going to do is we're going to give out some awards like we did in our preview episode. Okay. So let's start with Queen Victoria Syndrome, episode one. We begin it all with a Claire Foy flashback. <gasps> oh, I was Mallory. delighted. Joe, yeah, me too. What a thrill. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God, it's Claire Foy. Yeah. A lot of flashbacks in general in season five and uh, including a lot in this opening three episode stretch. We move through time quite a bit, but what a treat to be back with Claire Foy to usher in a new season of The Crown and to watch Claire Foy usher the Royal Yacht Britannia into, <laughs> into the sea. <laughs> The Britannia becomes sort of the 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 metaphor of a very metaphor heavy season, and I would say maybe like the one of the more labored metaphors that that the Crown puts forward. And it's not trying to hide that it's a labored metaphor, right? She says at one point in this episode, you know, the Britannia is me. You know, and it's just sort of like okay, we we get it. Yes, a seafaring embodiment. <laughs> Of her essence. I mean, who Absolutely. among us does not have a seafaring embodiment of, this episode, of our essence? And I think um, as a larger commentary on the royal, I mean, like as a metaphor for Elizabeth, it's mm, a little thin to me. But as a larger uh, commentary on like what the crown is, is it's kind of interesting to me in terms of um, as we discussed in our preview episode, neither you nor I are certain like fascinated with the Royals or Royals fans or anything like that. So that question constantly of like, 
What purpose does a show like The Crown serve? How interested are you in a pleasure yacht? How, where are the stakes around a pleasure yacht? Is the crown, is the monarchy something worth examining? And if so, why? If if the best metaphor for it is a pleasure, I mean, you know I love a pleasure yacht. You know that from love our time together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now Savar in the Ringerverse, yeah. but like as a larger metaphor for the thing that we're supposed to be very interested in and concerned mm-hmm. about, how does that work for you? So... As you noted, the Britannia is is one of what will become many different homes, institutions, various things, castles, carriages, a number of things, even just in these opening episodes, uh, villas over in France that stand in as a representation of some aspect of the royal family, some aspect of the crown. And some sort of decay, some sort of change in the public perception. To your, to your point about like maybe the distinction between how well the metaphor works as a, as a stand-in for a, a representation of Elizabeth herself versus the crown at large, the one part that I thought was compelling for like a closer comp to Elizabeth directly. Like, first of all, just the timeline, right? The, the, the yacht heading out into the waters in conjunction with the dawning of Elizabeth's reign, you know, separated by the, the, a little bit of time, but not much. And the moment that we hear Elizabeth talking and the, the doctor really pushing the boundaries of propriety by asking if she has a favorite home, we're all expecting her to say it's Balmoral, but that's the second. It's Britannia, we learn. And that idea that it was the only thing she got to like shape herself because everything else was inherited and passed down and something that she had to something that she had to like adjust herself to fit inside of as opposed to something that she got to fit to her. That was interesting to me. The broader role of the Royal Yacht, you know, we get to hear Philip who's been just (laughs) tracking that mechanical noise. One of the first times ever, let me say, very few moments in the history of the crown where I'm like, yeah, I can relate. (laughs) <laughs> but Philip just trying to ha- enjoy a meal and being like, what is that sound? And not being able to stop perseverating over it. It's like that I have done a thousand times. What is that mechanical sound? I must identify the source of that clicking. And when he says, <laughs> you know, comes a surprise. She's falling apart. She's a creature of another age. And then we have to be realistic about the cost of repairs when she's so obviously past her best. The way that that becomes a stand-in for our aging queen, our figurehead inside of this increasingly antiquated system. You know, it's a mission statement for the season, certainly. (laughs) We know what the season is going to be interested in examining. Queen Victoria Syndrome, the title of the episode, is is, uh, connected to this, uh, you know, newspaper uh, article and this poll about whether or not the queen who is in her 60s should, you know, abdicate, leave the throne and put Charles, the more progressive, uh, the young heir, youngish heir uh, in her place. I want to talk about Charles. I've, I've, I have a bit of a bone to pick. I feel like Imelda Staunton is a clear as crystal continuation of what Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman are doing. You and I talked to the preview episode about 
Philip and his changeable arc so that it sort of makes, even though Jonathan Price is doing something very different from what Tobias Menzies did, which was different from what Matt Smith does, it sort of makes sense for us a bit as like the progression of Philip. With Charles, we only have two performances here. We don't have three. It's not like a clean, you know. Right. We have arc. some child, yes, child yeah, some actors child in the Charles. early, yes, in the, yes. you know, the, the Scotland bully school and et cetera. Yes. But in terms of central figures, yes. Right. And Josh O'Connor, as we mentioned in our preview episode, was like so astonishing as Charles. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. And we love Dominic West, whether it's um, Mallory's mm-hmm. horny Nicky fascination Nasty. with the the affair or uh, <laughs> <laughs> with with crime in Baltimore that is The Wire. Um I have questions about this casting, and which I've already expressed to you, but I'm going to put on on record on the pod here because the thing about Charles, and I think the thing that Josh O'Connor captured captured so well, is this sort of this inherent petulance. This like I don't really hold to these standards, but let's just say for you know uh, brevity, beta male energy coming off of Charles, so that especially like his petulance. You mentioned in our previous episode that Australia tour episode, his petulance at being overshadowed by Diana, her celebrity, her magnitude, like um, magnetic energy, all of that sort of stuff. It is hard for me to buy in on someone like Dominic West, who is so, like, Josh O'Connor is attractive, but, like, Dominic West is, like, so virile and, and like, a pot. Like, no matter what he's ever done, he's never, he's constantly alpha male energy. That is who Dominic West is. And so... A glow up for a royal, that is what the crown has always done. Like, I'm, I'm not I'm not worried that he's, like, hotter than Charles is. Josh O'Connor is hotter than Charles is. That's fine. It's the energy. It's the vibe that I really object to. So that when he, when they go off on this second honeymoon tour, when his secretary, uh, you know, is like, hey, for the sake of PR, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make this bid to, to be king, like utilize your wife, you need her, right? But like a Dominic West King Charles, Prince Charles doesn't need Diana. Josh O'Connor Charles does. And so there's just like a, for me, a fundamental disconnect between performer and character and premise. And something that you pointed out to me when I was talking to you off pod about this a little bit is like, okay, well, does that match the moves that Charles is making here in in this sort of abdication plot when he's meeting with John Major and mm-hmm. sort of whisper campaigning about his own mother. Um, Wild John, stuff. Something yeah. that John, you know, and we've talked in the preview pod about like how we don't really object to the crown dramatically reinventing plenty of things. John Major has said, like, this is definitely not something that happened. Judy Dench <laughs> is like, this is definitely not something that happened. And so it just feels right. like character-wise, again, character-wise, yeah. a fundamental mismatch for Charles, who I believe when Josh O'Connor says, mummy, I believe it. When Dominic West as Charles says, mummy, mm-hmm. to Imelda Staunton's Elizabeth, I have a harder time <laughs> believing it. So right. uh, I yeah. love a lot about yeah. this season. I think Dominic West is incredibly good. It just feels like I need to accept a completely different, like this is Charles in quotation marks versus Charles. How do you, how do you feel about that? Probably, I guess less strongly than you, but I also don't disagree really with any, with anything you're saying. And I think it's like, for me, a a little bit of a classic two things could be true at once where I thought that his performance was really good, but also acknowledged within that that it is that he is performing a drastically different character. Um, 
not only than the evolution inside of the show, but maybe what <laughs> history would uh, lead us to, to ready for. I think that the, again, I have no idea what goes into casting the crown other than you, you need all stars, you know, bangers only, right? Like it's, it's gotta be a, a cast of, of superstars who can not only excel within the season, but carry on this, this legacy now that is, is four seasons deep. And I wonder if, given those historical alterations to the Charles um, political plot in particular, that was actually something that maybe not only didn't feel like a contradiction, but felt like it, it's something to actively pursue like that, uh, a performer who could imbue that uh, pursuit of something. And I think like about a, a scene where we actually get that conversation between Charles and the prime minister about contradictions. And I wonder if that's a little bit of like a message to the audience too, about the versions of Charles that, that we're getting. I think that's, I think that's fair. And you and I agree. I mean, like Dominic West is great. He's great. I just need to like really push him at it differently. <laughs> the thing, I mean, we're, we're going to get to like, uh, later in the season, we're going to get to some of the more like really embarrassing, really public stuff about Camilla and Charles. And it just sort of like really reads differently when it's Dominic West versus like imagine Josh O'Connor saying any of that stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's just different. Um, meanwhile, I think, you know, all the things that I said in the preview episode about Emma Corrin, I would, I would yes and plus for Elizabeth Debicki as Diana. Again, this is so, could so easily be an impersonation performance. And again, she nails the, the, crooked neck and up through the eyelashes look and the very specific way of talking. Um, and yeah, gosh, and I mean, is preposterously too tall for the role, but that's fine. As a tall person myself, I support it. Tall women deserve Absolutely roles too. Absolutely towering <laughs> over Charles on the, so, on the, another yacht. I loved it. Yeah. In that way, maybe like, you know, that, that, that sort of communicates a little bit of that emasculation, I suppose, but like, um, the, uh, I just, so Debicki, uh, and West and the whole, like, let's give him some of that old magic, uh, yacht, uh, disembarkment, which is recreation as the crown, the crown is fictionalized. And then also sometimes as these moments of recreation, recreation of a 1991 Italy trip that Charles and Diana took down to the costumes, all that sort of stuff. Um, how did you feel about this, this particular pleasure yacht and, uh, <laughs> and their experience on it? I mean, this yacht looks looked lovely. Which which yacht would you choose for a little seafaring adventure? This yacht, Britannia, or the Roy family yacht I from was Succession? Say the the Roy family yacht. <laughs> yeah, that would probably just, be my pick as well. I was well. just thinking about toenails and uh, me too. I was just going to mention toenail fungus. Yeah, <laughs> Scott, you, you've got to mind the teak. Um, I I I liked this. Italy stretch and the yacht stretch as an establishing. I thought this stuff worked a lot better than the quite heightened and, um, you know, really actively strange Charles plot to overthrow his mother, where, like, even as a viewer, I, I said this in the preview fight, even as a viewer who's like, I don't expect the crown to be like note for note historical, that was like, I paused and I was like, this did that? This that didn't happen like this, <laughs> right? This is like, yeah. what? Um, the yacht stretch, the second honeymoon, first of all, bringing in William and Harry. And it's like mm -hmm. heart-wrenching to see this dynamic, the moment around this large dinner table where Charles has surrounded himself with his friends on what is supposed to be this 
family vacation. Uh, Yes, for the press and public image maintenance, but also this time together. And the tension over like, what is fun? What is a, what is interesting? What is a genuine pursuit of like curiosity and pleasure for the people in question? And, you know, the shopping moment and like the boys being the ones who raise their hands to support their mom and then their little like Super Mario Game Boy uh, love fest down below deck uh, after was just like, really uh, set the tone, I think, pretty effectively for everything that's to come. And when you have, like, Charles debriefing with Norton later, you know, he says, like, isn't it extraordinary how two people's understanding of fun could be so wholly different? And I think that that's always an area of interest for the Crown is, like, when do when do people's differences unlock something that's actually essential for each other? Like, and how can that be a helpful way to support and forge an alliance with each other? Elizabeth and Philip have given us uh, plenty of moments to interrogate and think about that very question. And when is it something that makes it, uh, among other variables, certainly, like, impossible for people to find a a way to coexist? Was your experience watching the season of The Crown and and thinking about the crown in general and Elizabeth throughout Elizabeth versus Margaret and Elizabeth versus uh, Diana, et cetera. Um, did you ever think about Alison Hightower saying, where's duty? Where's sacrifice? Like a hundred times. <laughs> like constantly, right? <laughs> Legitimately. And this, yeah. is, this is like, Elizabeth is like, hey man, if I were to pursue the person whose interests align with mine, I'd be married to Porchy. Not fucking Philip, that's for sure. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, T- uh, like I just want to say, real tough look for Charles as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I'm I'm pretty down on Charles in general, but like, and this season actually is is kind of pro Charles in a way. But like, I uh, who looks down their nose at someone who just wants to shop? Like, it's okay to want to shop if you're taking a, a trip to Italy. Like, I love museums and ruins too. I don't particularly <laughs> yeah. love shopping, but it is not an insane request. To want to go shopping when you're yachting around Italy, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I love this depiction of Diana as fun mom. This is like one of my favorite aspects of Diana. Um, actually, I almost wish this season had more of this, but um, the film Spencer um, <clears throat> that came out last year, which I absolutely loved, but a lot of people didn't, but I loved, but the relationship between Diana and her boys. Um, which is complicated because it is both like, she's just fun mom. They love her. She loves them. She's cause such an ease with them. She there's, they're the, they're her world is all true. And she leans on them. Like in this moment of like, ne- like it, these poor children should not have to like be in a position where they have to support their mom at a table of adults. And again, as I said in the preview pod, I judge everyone who doesn't stick up for Diana. So Penelope, we're going to come back to you in episode two, but just sitting there <laughs> silently and not saying like, hey, it's fine if Diana wants to shop. Like I was judging her at that moment. So we'll get back to more Penelope judgment. Um, we briefly see Andrew Morton here as they take like, you know, one last little photo op um, where Diana's like basically crying, um, uh, you know, with the boys. And uh, we'll come back to Andrew Morton later. Let's talk about the queen. You already mentioned in the preview pod this uh, idea of hiding the newspaper from the queen is is not necessarily like a a, a new idea. This is something that we've seen before on the crown. Um, what did you make of all of this? Of like, let's hide this story that Philip is in cahoots with. Let's hide the story from from the queen and from Anne. Okay, so. <laughs> 
couple things. One, really captures the absurdity of the entire enterprise. Like the idea that you could shield information that is this public and this widely disseminated and this much of a guarantee and absolute certainty to spark conversation and debate that would not cease quickly, right? Like there's no way to contain it, but they really try and think they can, which just tells you so much about like the willfully isolated nature of royal life. And there's a part of you that's like, of course, Elizabeth susses this out right away and is like, why are people being odd? Like everybody's being weird. Why is everybody being weird? And is like an intuitive, alert, aware person. And then there are plenty of other times over the course of The Crown where Elizabeth is the one who's like... Uh, I'm, I'm actually just like not going to watch that. <laughs> like, can we turn back to the channel I want to have on instead? So there's that interesting tension. I think with Philip, I was really, really, really struck by his immediate initial response to seeing the article, seeing the poll, which was, it's outrageous. She never stops. She never complains. She never puts a foot wrong. She's utterly magnificent. And they print rubbish like this. That is such an insight into the way that he has evolved as somebody who is more comfortable, not always comfortable, as we'll chat about, but increasingly has come to understand his role. Like one of the earliest moments that we get with Philip and his father-in-law out on the boats, do you understand what the job is. She's the job. And that's like this defining thing across Philip's arc. And he often actively resists it. Doesn't want, like, thinks, put, how, what do you mean I would bend down to you at your own coronation? Absolutely not, right? These moments where Philip is not only seeking his own sense of purpose and achievement in life, but rebelling against like what the role is. And so yeah. a moment like that where he's like, I understand it and actually like think that she's incredible, <laughs> just like summed up decades and decades of evolution for him. We're going to come back to that in later episodes, but like yes. that feels like a clear arc to me. And then the arc gets a little like, I think muddier as, as the season progresses. But um, then we got like a lot of stuff with John Major in this episode, as we mentioned in the preview pod, like this prime minister's relationship or or the monarchy through the lens of the given prime minister is always sort of an interesting way to think about the crown. And so we get these meetings between Charles and John Major, and we get these meetings between Elizabeth and John Major, and then he attends the Gillies Ball, this, this you know, real event that takes place at Balmoral um, and observes it along with his wife, John Lee Miller. Like Dominic West, way too hot for this role, but, uh, you know, with the wig and the glasses and, like, the, the temperament seems fine, you know? Frankly, astonishing <laughs> casting. <laughs> like, All-time heat check here from yeah. the crowd. It's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Preposterous, honestly, but that's fine. Uh, here we are. Um, uh, I want to go back in time and tell, like, 90s Joanna that, like, Johnny Lee Miller from, like, Trade Spotting <laughs> is going to be Sean Major <laughs> in the crowd. <laughs> Um, I love this, this, uh, Charles is the first one to bring it up in a really clumsy, like Charles's whole interaction with John Major is so obvious and sweaty and terrible. And when he essentially like insults him 
while trying to inform the audience who John Major is, but just basically says, it's odd that you come from a middle-class background, but you're not of the Labour Party, right? Like, this is, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. weird, right? Yes. Um, it seems like you've kind of shut the door on where you came from, and, and you're not really doing that anymore. That's, that's interesting. But you're progressive like me, so let's talk about the future. But this constant... You know, we saw it with Thatcher, uh, you know, Thatcher's excruciating experience coming to Balmoral. Uh, John Major seems a little bit more at, at home at the Gillies Ball. But this idea when Margaret comes up to John at the, at the Gillies Ball and says, like, this is a Saturnalia. If you know what that is, then he, like, recites the, like, he, Hermione Granger's her and, like, recites the perfect <laughs> definition of what a Saturnalia is. And he's, like, basically, like... I'm educated, actually. I'm not just, yeah. you know, uh, you know, the butler that you've led into the party for the evening. Um, what do you think about this depiction of of the prime minister in this era of the crown? So, again, I always love what the conversations between the prime minister and the monarch unlock for us about the state of the nation at that moment in time, what public opinion is, what the challenges are, and. This was a this was a kind of like unique experience where it's not new for us to see a look of like frank alarm or befuddlement on the prime minister's <laughs> face hearing something yeah. in a royal sitting room but to get to see multiple conversations with multiple different members of the family in such quick succession you see the way that he is responding to this very, again, like you said, clumsy appeal from Charles. And you just are like, this is like, this isn't going the way that Charles thinks it's going to go. He's not going to get this <laughs> support for basically his in-family coup. And so you enter the scene with Elizabeth and right at the beginning with like the, the handing over of the tea and she's reciting her, her quotes and he has this like sweet little smile on his his face and you're like, yeah, there's a warmth here. and you're ready for him to say, this is the person I support, even if he's saying it with a facial expression or an action. But then immediately he's again like, okay, you are also out of touch, just in a different way from the next generation. And actually I'm now more alarmed because I've realized that every generation of this family is completely unprepared for the reality of the moment. All of which of course then culminates in this the uh, window gazing speech that he makes to his wife about how the entire country is going to fall apart on his watch because this family is such a fucking mess. <laughs> let's let's go ahead and hear Johnny Lee Miller like give this little like thesis for this season of The Crown uh, here at the end of the episode. When you imagine the problems you might be confronted with as prime minister, you imagine tricky sessions at PMQs, the economy in free fall, going to war. You never imagine this. The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. Instead, the senior royals seem dangerously deluded and out of touch. The junior royals, feckless, entitled, and lost. And the Prince of Wales, impatient for a bigger role in public life, fails to appreciate that his one great asset is his wife. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. And what makes it worse is it feels it's all about to erupt on my watch. 
there's a lot we can say about the crown being a little on the nose and this speech here from John Major is a little, is definitely on the nose, but like there's artistry to the way that it's shot in terms of like what we're seeing play out as he's talking about it. Um, and I think his performance is really good. The, this episode and the next one are both directed by Jessica Hobbs, uh, who is a New Zealand director who has done several episodes of the crown. She also worked on Broadchurch. So I, you know, I wonder if Olivia Coleman brought her in or something like that, but, um, uh, you know, visually, I think a lot as is done with contrasting images with with speeches and and just letting us sort of forge those connections ourselves. So even though this speech is a little heavy handed, it worked for me, um, especially the image of of like Diana and Fergie and Charles and all of that going on going on uh, out in the courtyard. Anything else you want to say about this? Saturnalia about this episode about John Major himself. I, you know, we we. I'll, I'll just mention with this this Queen Victoria syndrome idea. We talked a lot in our preview pod about how uh, Elizabeth herself often embraces something that the characters around her are hurling as a critique, which is the constancy, right? And so this is something that the queen voices to the prime minister in this conversation: constancy, stability, calm, duty. I would be proud to have described me. And I, I find that to be a compelling text inside of this episode in this season, like how sometimes the thing that somebody levies and hurls at you, maybe it's a newspaper, maybe it's a stranger who's voting in a poll, maybe it's your own son, is something that like you think you, is a source of pride for you. And is that something that earns our sympathy and love? Or is that something that reveals maybe how wide the gap actually is between a person and the country in, that they inhabit or the role that they inhabit. So I thought that that was really interesting. And like, as is so often the case with an Elizabeth scene, we're like feeling very warm, warmly toward her and and actually quite sorry for her. And then the rational part of your brain kicks in and you're like, oh, shouldn't we be asking to spend millions of pounds refurbishing the Royal Yacht at this moment? Like, is this what we should be thinking about? <laughs> Why can't they pay for it for themselves? But it was like heart-wrenching to see the moment where she was reading the paper and then we're cutting to the scene of her walking the dogs like out in the Scottish uh, country life, walking like in the, 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 the place where she actually does feel like happy and at peace. And that it's that sense of duty again, a duty that she embraces and truly believes defines her life. But like, would she just have been happier with the dogs and the horses and Porchy? Without question. Yeah. Sad. That's, I mean, <laughs> in this episode, you know, Anne pays a little visit and we will come back to Anne in this Great season. But again, I love those moments because like Anne and Elizabeth obviously just like have such an easy understanding and relationship and they just like the same things. Similar to like, you know, the Queen Mother. And Elizabeth and like occasionally Elizabeth Margaret, there's this just sort of like ease of family that is not present in her relationship with Charles and, and yeah. like basically any of her sons. The Anne Elizabeth stuff actually felt like new to me because yes, they have like the horse love in common, et cetera. But Anne has always been, you know, Philip girl dad. Like if Anne has always been Philip's favorite and um, the, the way that they just laughed together at like the stinky minky joke and seemed to have found maybe like a new shorthand and comfort with each other as they've both aged and matured, I thought was really, was really nice. To return to your Elizabeth sort of embracing the Victoria syndrome as not an insult, but a compliment. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't BS, I think, if we didn't drop a Game of Thrones quote here, right? And so uh, the Tyrion Lannister, never forget what you are, the rest of the world will not wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you. So... 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let us roll ahead to episode two of the season called The System. We will get a little speech from Philip at the end. This is a Philip episode uh, or like a Philip and, and Diana Andrew Morton sort of three-hander. Um, I'm You love a Philip episode. I historically do not love these episodes where Philip's like, okay. I've, got, yeah. I've got a hobby. Um, oh, man. And I'm particularly <laughs> baffled yeah. by the carriage racing yes. plotline, though I did love the opening because Philip in this era <laughs> started traveling the world and saying like baffling... <laughs> Increasingly out of touch, downright racist things like like Philip. The malapropisms of Philip in an interview was like one of the first things I ever learned about him as a person. Yes. Again, um, so this opening interview where he's like constantly distracted by a bird, <laughs> constantly <laughs> distracted. Honestly, by a bird. Yeah. top tier stuff from oh, Jonathan God. Price. But then there's just like. A lot of carriage racing stuff. So, yeah. Mallory, sell me on the carriage racing. I, I won't. I won't okay. sell you on it. I, I did not. This was not my favorite episode of these uh, this opening trio and not my favorite episode of the season. And, you know, I do love the the Philip-centric episodes. I love uh, Philip searching for, for meaning and uh, sitting around a circle talking about spirituality and uh, how you, you'll never think about life the same way once you've been above the clouds. I'm a real sucker for that. I will I will note once again that I am I'm praising Philip the character on the crown right. as a compelling watch Absolutely. and a very entertaining television figure, not the actual human. Um I, this was very this was very strange, the carriage driving stuff. And again, like another metaphor we both uh we both jotted down um ship of theseus in our our notes watching the refurbishment of this carriage and like again that larger question of if you keep tweaking and subbing in and replacing and updating it, it, that philosophical question of is the thing still the thing then at what point does the essence of it change if you've subbed out every plank in the ship or every uh wheel and axis on the carriage but I, the, the, the through line of the bird throughout the episode um and this like leisurely hobby and sense of freedom and this embrace of something new in philip's old age 
Uh, just uh, not my favorite standalone fill up episode and not my favorite episode of season five. But generally, I like that genre of fill up episode. <laughs> um, Natasha, I'm probably going to butcher her name, but it's like Mac. No, I've never, I've never been able to do it. I've never been able to do it in the decades that she's been on screen. Uh, you know, Truman Show, Siren Extraordinaire, incredible actress. Love her generally. Really interesting casting here. She's wearing, she's burdened with an all-time '90s wig. Honestly, a lot of bang work going on here for Penelope Natchbull. But you know, this we're talking about the different, the major difference in episode one between. Matt Smith's Philip and this Philip, but as he mentions at the end of this episode when he's talking to Diana and he's like, you know, I'm fond of you perhaps because you're young and attractive. The fact that he's like carriage racing around with a young and attractive blonde, that that feels like Matt Smith Philip to me. So, uh, you know, that's in the mix. But let's talk about Andrew Morton. And this is this is a huge thing that had to happen this season. Andrew Steele plays Andrew Morton, the, uh, you know, a, frankly, a tabloid journalist who found a way to communicate uh, with Diana through her friend, Dr. James Colthurst. This all happened, it's true, uh, to write this massive tell-all about Diana, which is a huge breach of the understanding in the royal family that we don't we don't talk about this stuff. We don't go to the press with this stuff. We don't expose ourselves in this way. And Diana... Again, understanding a bit more about celebrity culture in general, like having just a natural savvy for PR and then also feeling like nobody in the family is listening to her anyway. So someone wants to hear what she has to say, like she's going to say it. Um, Season four ends with Elizabeth basically being like, I got to go walk my dogs instead of talking to you. So like, you know, the question begs the question, like if somebody, if, if people had just listened to Diana, would she have? needed to go to Andrew Morton and all of this. I don't know. Should she be required to be silent about this sort of thing? Like, this is the stuff that's plaguing Harry and Meghan right now. They are persona non grata because they sat down and talked to Oprah. Like, they are pulling a page right out of Diana's playbook here and getting their story out there. But it's simply not done. Um and again, this is the, the the media, the journalism thread that runs the this, uh, this sort of war, the PR war between Charles and Diana or Diana and the larger family that Morton says in this episode, he says, you know, all out war basically is, is what's going down here. Um, how did all of that uh, work for you, Mallory Rubin? More broadly, the way that the Royal family has always thought about the press and thought that they could use or control the press has always been like really interesting, you know, thinking about like a, 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 a an episode like 48-1 in season four where Queen Elizabeth does the unthinkable and they plant, you know, and this leak that the queen is unhappy with Thatcher's position. Thinking that it's this like, even though uh, all of her counselors are telling her not to do it, she's like thinking that it's this great um, necessity and an important thing, a character who has long been defined by this belief and advice from others, Queen Mary on down, that uh, the, the silence, that not saying anything, that not expressing an opinion, even about urgent matters, uh, is a requirement and, in fact, an inherent aspect of the role. And as viewers were like, 
yes, say the thing, say that this is horrible. And then you watch the way that it all comes crashing down in the wake of that. And like the belief that they can control the press, even though there are plenty of times where we do see inside of the office of a given paper or TV station, the conversations in the boardrooms about what it would mean to print something unfavorable about the royal family. So we see it in all directions. Like that's always been one of the great fascinations inside of the show, even just media more broadly, like Philip campaigning to broadcast the coronation and like the way the royal family and the members of it think about their image and what they are presenting to the world. That's always been like things central to the show and watching that evolve over time as media evolves and like does the royal family's understanding of the evolving nature of media keep pace with the truth of how consumers are absorbing it? And the answer to that is almost always no. And so Diana is an exception, right? Because she does understand the way that information reaches people. And so like to see the sequence of the first series of recordings where she's answering Andrew's questions for the first time. And like the first one is just, why are you doing this? And she says, like, it finally dawned on me that unless I get my side of the story out there, people will never understand how it's really been for me. And that, that conflict and tension that you understand you have to say something and get your truth out there because you are being told that part of the system, and Philip makes this great big speech to her at the end about, about the what system. the system is and yeah. what is necessary to maintain it and occupy your role inside of it, silence being such a key part of it. But not every single person's silent. Other people say things. And so then there's a void if you don't fill it. And I mean, so we see throughout the season, I mean, Andrew Morton is certainly to a certain degree manipulating Diana here, preying upon some paranoia. And we'll see that throughout. And it's certainly something that journalists can and will do, which is sort of like, even even like the most straight shooter, best journalist that I know, a tactic in order to get a, a a reluctant source to speak to you is to say like, well, don't you want your side of the story represented? Mm-hmm. You don't you don't want to let them have their own say. You should have your voice out yeah. there. That and, initial pitch hinges so heavily on the idea that there's another book being uh, yes. fueled by sources close to Charles. Charles, right? So like, get your narrative out there. Um, but I do think again, it's uh, Diana has a lot of savvy, a lot of natural savvy, but is also easily manipulated as we see because she's so isolated and so you know all this stuff is going on. Um, an episode that I really love of The Crown that has to do with, you know, you, you mentioned a couple great ones, but season two, episode five, Marionettes, um, which is the queen gives this awful speech and then there's the Pierce near response. Um, and then she winds up giving this Christmas Day speech that becomes like a thing going forward, this idea of the media and the television. But there's this great speech from her mother, the queen mother. It says, first the barons came for us, then the merchants, now the journalists. Small wonder we make such a fuss about, fuss about curtsies, protocol, and precedent. It's all we have left, the last scraps of our armor as we go from ruling to reigning to, to what? To being nothing at all, marionettes, right? And so this idea of, I mean, yes, as, as someone who has followed royal journalism, there's this thing that there's the palace spokesperson you don't get quotes from the royals. You get quotes from the palace spokesperson. 
And then you've got Harry and Meghan. And so the palace spokesperson is out there saying whatever they want about the state of affairs of the palace and Harry and Meghan feeling like, well, if we don't say our side of it, then it's just that version of it, of events, of what happened with us, right? And so, uh, and again, what can you control once you open the door to the press in that way? And the changeability of the press from being simply like, the BBC and a few papers in the like 50s and 60s in in British media at least to the tabloids in the 90s and what has happened for journalistic standards and what can be printed and what can and the proliferation of what exists and our fascination with the gossip and all this sort of stuff. So it's uh, again that that difference that progression of Elizabeth and her family through the eras of journalism is something that I think is really that the Crown is interested in and is really interesting to me. So. Yeah, yeah. I think like two of an episode like um, from season three, uh, uh, Bobbykins, which is yeah another like classic Philip completely botching it yeah. <laughs> episode where he in- invites in the BBC for this documentary in an attempt to convince the public that the, the royal family deserves more money and that it, they are uh, drastically uh, undervalued for their role in life. And so there's this recognition that the royal family needs the media and needs the cameras and the papers to prop up their celebrity, but they don't always know how to properly use the thing that they're trying to control. And like the fact that they are often so bad at it, (laughs) it's like really compelling. And of course makes us inclined to like disagree when a character like Philip or any number of other characters is saying like, you have to understand this is the way it is because we've seen those characters across the prior seasons botch it so many times. The Andrew Morton biography is hugely famous. Very, very interesting read. And if you don't have time to read it, um, one of my favorite podcasts you're wrong about did like, I think a three-parter, maybe just a two-parter, sort of going through some of the key revelations um, from that, uh, <laughs> from that astonishing book. Um, and that's, that podcast are labeled Diana Hot Mess Express. And that's sort of like a phrase that's really stuck with me with Diana, because like, as much as I sort of love and admire and you're rooting for her because of you know, the system attempting to sort of crush her under the heel of its boot. At the same time, Diana is like, you know, uh, an unpredictable element of live wire and does some shit that is pretty fucked up. I'm not saying like speaking to Andrew Morton is it, but there's some other stuff that happens. So um, really, really fascinating stuff. Anything you want to say about this Philip-Diana conversation about the system? Don't rock the boat (laughs) ever. And the way she flinches when he says ever. Yeah, like I think that this episode in some ways that are more successful than others tries to show show us the way that Philip has changed or the way that Philip has learned something about himself that he is then projecting onto other people. And, you know... In this particular conversation with Diana, the lecture about the system, it's like gross and appalling to us, especially because we know that he's a character that resented being on the other end of that uh, rebuke so often. I think that there are other moments in the episode where, like, you hear him say something, you know, he's he's speaking with, with Penny, uh, 
at her home, having gone initially to see Norton and then ends up on this <laughs> carriage uh, driving odyssey with, with Penny, where, you know, he's talking about the thing that attracted him to Elizabeth in the first place was like the idea that it would be forever and how that longing for stability after the constant upheaval and strife of his youth was like the very heart of the appeal for him. But then he says, you know, it, it brings its problems too because it doesn't take into account the one thing human beings do the minute they make a commitment to a life together, which is, Penny asks, grow in separate directions. Like, that feels truer to the spirit of Philip to me, certainly the Philip that we've spent a lot of time with, which is like recognizing the value of the system that he is a part of, but also... Uh, also pushing up against the limits of it, specifically when they impact him directly or inhibit something that that he wants. Um, I thought the highlight of this episode was probably like Philip's speech about grief, grief. which is yeah. him talking to uh, Penny, not Diana, obviously. But that was that was very moving. Yeah, I thought the montage of the tapes, like the whole the whole. Like watching the tapes go back and forth. This, this, um, I love Oliver Chris, who plays her doctor friend, who is just like, um, a, a guy that I've really loved for a long time. Um, like just the biking back, the improbability, the cloak and dagger of it all, the racquetball games, everything that's involved in like getting this to like, again, the process of getting an ungettable story is always of interest to me. Um, let's go to episode three, Moo Moo. This is my favorite episode of the season. <laughs> And like I like I kind of had an inkling of that the the first time I watched it and the second time I watched it I was like no I like I had perfect recall of this episode as I was like before I rewatched it I was like I remember every single thing and maybe part of that is like you can't second screen this because a lot of it is in Arabic and French so like you have to be like dialed in and paying attention to every single moment um, but I just I think the the themes that are at play here this episode that is very little to do with our core royals um and that but everything to do with them at the same time and then the performance by Salim Da who plays Mohammed which is just like one of an old timer crown performance for me um so we're laying track here we meet it is mostly a Mohammed Al Fayed episode but we meet his son Dodi Dodi Fayed very famously very important for the end of Diana's story obviously um i think it's incredibly smart storytelling to lace him in here in episode three of this season. Um, uh, you know, so that we're not just, you know, we're just meeting him as he comes into Diana's life officially. We'll have spent some time with him. And I think that that is a uh, really smart storytelling. And then also wrapped inside this larger, first of all, improbable true life thing that Again, another really fascinating figure, Sydney Johnson, played by um, Jude uh, Akawudike, uh, who was Edward's valet, and then, yes, actually, Muhammad Al-Fayed's valet as well. Um, that figure and that larger idea of the people of the Commonwealth the adoration of the British monarchy, the ultimate outsiders, the way that Muhammad, who is 
you know, not refined and not, you know, and is a brown man and all this sort of stuff that ultimate outsider aspirationally looking at the center of the, of the monarchy. How do I get there? How can I work my way up? And then the, the ceiling, the wall, the door that is there always, no matter what you do, you will not touch the center of this maze. This maze is not for you to quote our dearly departed Westworld. Mallory Rubin, what do you want to say about Mumu? Uh, I also loved this episode. This was uh, this was my my favorite of the opening batch here, and one of my favorites of the season. Uh, we move through a ton of time in this episode. You know, we open in in forty six, and then we we move across the years, and we move across the world. And in that very opening stretch in Egypt, the way that we capture that ambition, but also the understanding that uh, there was something forbidden about it, like the family dinner conversation, I don't save my greatest contempt for them, meaning the the British. My greatest contempt is for the Egyptians who look up to the British as gods. And then we cut to the younger members debriefing about this and we hear Mumu say if we look up to their kings and queens as gods it's because they are and so we understand right away that this is not necessarily a shared thing even in the most intimate circle of his life but it is a defining defining pursuit for him and yeah you know your point about like the 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 cap that is always there and watching over time taking over the Ritz, winning an Oscar through their production company for Chariots of Fire, buying Harrods, working into the, the stables and the event, but not in the seat that he thought, and then finally getting to the seat right there next to the queen, where as the sponsor of that event, it would be his expectation to have that conversation. And even then, I didn't, I didn't even mention Villa Windsor refurbishing the Duke of Windsor's Parisian estate to lure the royal family there and then having <laughs> Richard Fellows and a bunch of suits show up instead to take mm. away the abdication desk and all of the papers that might represent a threat to the family. And the moment where that was a particularly great scene because Sydney and Dodie are standing there too. And Sydney says, you know, in essence, I, I promise you that whatever you're thinking right now, the Duke of Windsor thought it every day. And Mumu says, what are you talking about? I just made the Queen of England very happy. And like the way that his awareness builds over time to ultimately culminating in this like incredible scene between Mumu and Diana, who takes the seat instead at the end, that he can't break through. He can't get the Queen to sit next to him and speak to him even after all of these things that he's done. And what does Diana say? Same. Like a person who is married into their family. I mean, that was just like a boy. That was electric. So good. That scene yeah. between them, astonishing. Honestly, um, it's a I, joke. Joke. That was <laughs> so funny. So I good. mean, like you understand. I mean, I think we got it a lot in that Australia tour episode, and and also the New York visit for Diana at the end of season four. But like, there are these moments where you just like get it. 
like what Diana has to offer and the frustration again that Don Major voiced in episode one of the royal family not getting what an asset they have there. Because what do we, in that moment where Diana and Mumu are like having their conversation and she's so good at it, so effortlessly winning. And then what do you cut to? You cut to Margaret and Elizabeth watching them and just sort of like Margaret being the sneeriest, snidest she can be. What did you say? Like out of the acorn of kindness, the oak tree of happiness or something like that. Like just, yeah, yeah, just, just some shit from Margaret and just sort of like Elizabeth being like, oh God, that worked out. I was worried. I was being rude. Like all sorts of stuff. And they're, they're just sort of like, oh, look at them. The outsiders sitting over there together. And here's us, the insiders over here. And you're just sort of like, you don't get it at all, man. That like what Elizabeth can do for you in literally almost any situation. There's also, obviously, with that Elizabeth Margaret uh, observing from afar sequence, and that that seems to have worked out well, uh, line, for us as viewers, of course, this, like, incredibly ominous <laughs> doom hanging over that, knowing uh, how how deeply and, and tragically untrue that will, will prove to be. So just, like, as you noted already, the, I think, real... Uh, real brilliance of introducing Mumu and Dodie this early in the story was was really smart to give us that moment to give us the first moment where Diana and, Do- and Dodie are introduced um, to establish this like the the, the ease of the relationship between Mumu and Diana, that these are people who would just very naturally enjoy spending time together and find like a a quick uh, sense of belonging with each other. That was all like really expertly done um, inside of this episode. And I think like, again, that tension of like, there's like a a, a heinous streak that runs through. This was the episode you alluded to. Uh, your guy, the Duke of Windsor, the abdicator, the former King <laughs> Edward coming back. Love um, him. And, you know, this is like a horrific h- historical figure and oh, Nazi yeah. sympathizer. Yes. And we see, like, even in a conversation, um, like the one that he and Wallace have in Egypt about Sydney, like the roots of... Uh, viciousness at the heart of so much of their life and the roots of bigotry and keeping anybody who is not like them at a remove. And then the, you know, you watch like this life that first the Duke of Windsor and Wallace and Sydney and then Sydney and Muhammad end up living together. And there's a parallel there because of course, horrifically Muhammad wants Sydney removed has Dodie remove him from this grand reopening of the Ritz it's awful it's deplorable when Sydney is is in on his deathbed we watch Muhammad like tending to him have a have a genuine emotional reaction to him and it's like yeah it's kind of a classic like uh, trope of like British film and theater this idea of like the 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 man and his valet and like the understanding that can cross class or racial or whatever divide and it's it's condescending and it's colonialist and in this situation it's like a a brown man doing that to a black man all that sort of stuff like that but then there's also just genuine affection and beauty in that relationship as well it's incredibly complicated the fact so when we were 
in the preview episode, when we were picking our best episode of seasons one through four, I almost picked Regengenheit, which is the Duke of Windsor Nazi sympathizer episode. Not because I am down with Nazi sympathizers, but just because the crown is willing to grapple with these. I, I Edward is one of my favorite characters because he is so complicated and hard to get his our arms around and fun and emotionally complicated. All of that is true inside of him and all of that is true inside of someone like Muhammad Al-Fayed, who is horrible, but then also magnetic. And um, again, played by someone incredibly charismatic and gives me a figure, like on, on its surface, Muhammad is not someone I have any interest in Rooting for, he represents a lot of things that I find completely deplorable, but he's also incredible television. And um, I really loved watching him. It really helps us understand who Dodie is and his shadow. The the like posture he adopts throughout the when we talked a lot about posture of like Josh O'Connor or Elizabeth Debicki, but um Halida Dalla, who plays Dodie, who was also in Moon Knight. Uh, Completely wasted in Moon Knight, but was in Moon Knight. Uh, I was like, you look so familiar to me. Why? Um, his like sort of subservient posture that he adopts around his dad as he's sort of trailing around his dad, that he's like not approving of his dad's behavior in any regard, but is also happy to draft off of his success. Again, I find that a really compelling and fascinating character to watch. Um a Charles-esque sort of figure in his own right, which I think is really interesting. Also, I love the Chariots of Fire moment. I was like, when, the, when that started, I was like, oh, doing Chariots of Fire? I was like, wow. Yes. <gasps> oh, boy. Cue up the Vangelis. Amazing. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about this episode? Okay. While I loved this episode, I have one nitpick from yeah. a structural making of the crown yeah. <laughs> perspective. Uh-huh. Okay. So we obviously mentioned that the first episode opens with Claire Foy. I understand that going back that far in time <laughs> necessitates bringing back the season one and two cast in a way that just being like a, a few years earlier maybe doesn't necessitate bringing back the seasons three and four cast. But I thought it was confusing to see Him the season five, to see the season five cast in the season four timeline. Oh, I hear what you're saying. Because yes. I was like, that should be Olivia Coleman. <laughs> Why is that a Melda Stone? And then it got, and then it just took me out of it because I had to pause and think about like where we were in time. Like the conversations about Villa Windsor and uh, even the, the, the racetrack, like that's before... 91, which is when this new cast takes over. So that was... Oh, that's uh, a great point. That great was like point. strange I to me. About, it was jarring. I hadn't thought about that. I had wondered... Yeah. I mean, I really love Alex Jennings, so I was really happy to see him. Uh, but like, should that have been Derek Jacoby who played, you know, the Duke of Windsor in, in season four, I think it is? Um, probably. But I would rather have that sort of confusing... You're right. You're not wrong. But his flashback was 46, so that that made the sense. The first time, but then, yeah. like, later, when he's got the snowy hair and he's, yeah. like, the whole montage, where he's talking about what it takes to be an English gentleman, which I loved when he's just, like, throwing, when he's, like, 
not bothering to like hold or like grasp his cigarette with his lip. It's just dangling from his mouth as he's like tossing PG Woodhouse on the table or whatever. Oh man, or talking the stop motion swing. Photography of the golf swing was <laughs> remarkable, as was um, uh, the t- very detailed focus on socks, socks. and ro- rolling down I the mean, socks. Oh, I'm not, a, again, let us reiterate for the 50th times, we are not monarchists, but do I want to <laughs> have a little case of socks ready to go, rolled down, ready to go every morning? Maybe. You routinely go through your day saying that afternoon tea is, quote, a ritual to be savored, and... Uh, <laughs> Frankly, I don't disagree. So. I think you know that about me. All right. <gasps> That's episodes one through three of season five of The Crown. We'll be back again later this week with episodes four through six and then the wrap-up episode as well. Um, before we go, let's quickly do our awards of this little chunk of the season. Fit Watch. Molly Rubin. So I am going with Anne, Princess Royal arriving on Britannia in just jeans and a sweater. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> this is why I love Anne. This is the good <laughs> stuff. Now, they're always more casual in the Scottish stretches, but uh, I was literally like, I'm wearing that tomorrow to the office. Like, <laughs> This is the stuff, Lionel. Absolutely yeah. great. Uh, I told you that I watched a whole documentary on Anne after season four. I just like love her so much. Uh, fascinating figure. Um, I'm going to give it to, oh, I mentioned this, in the preview pod, but the, during the montage in episode three, where we're watching the Duke of Windsor get dressed and we're watching Muhammad get dressed. We also watch Elizabeth get dressed for this event. And she's wearing this purple, that number that might as well be a Dolores Umbridge pink. I just thought it was extraordinary little suit on her, a little purple suit. Uh, wig watch, Mallory Rubin. It's, it's, it's gotta be John Major for, for worst, right? I mean, I didn't sort it worst or best. I just sort of, I'm just kind of going with like most wig. Yeah. It's just like, that's a wig. (laughs) Yeah. And like John Major's really up there and, and, um, I, I told you before we recorded that I was going to have to put John Lee Miller on blast for that. But like, we also, we see the Camilla wig. The Camilla wig. We do glimpse it. Yeah. We, get, we glimpse the Camilla wig. Yeah. So maybe, maybe John Major gets it for this because we'll spend more time with Camilla later. Yeah, so that's... we'll give it to John Major. Camilla here. will definitely win wig watch in, in <laughs> future installments of this podcast. Without a doubt. Uh, best line of episodes one through three of season five. Okay. So I'm going to go with two. I'm going to go with like a, a moving one and a funny one. Okay. I'm going with uh, Philip's speech about grief. I learned then what grief was. True grief. How it moves through the body. How it inhabits it. How it becomes part of your skin. Your cells. And it makes a home there. A permanent home. But you learn to live with it. It drastically shifting tones here. I was in hysterics when Anne was like asking about Tim, asking her mother, the queen, who that was. And, uh, you know, the queen's like, he's just like, that's Tim, he's been around. And Anne says, how come I never noticed? Elizabeth says, because you're married. And Anne replied, only technically. (laughs) (laughs) Killed me. And uh, she's just the best. So good. All right. I don't have, I have a 
I have a bit of a cheat, but it's only just because it's a back and forth. It's not a singular line, but it's between Diana and Mumu. And you mentioned this sort of their affinity as outsiders, right? No, we have to be serious. There's royalty here. Oh, yeah. Somewhere. Not anywhere near you, then. (laughs) No matter how much you pay to grovel, you paid a lot. A fortune. But the idea of have you paid a lot? I mean, it's very Thanos. What did it cost? Everything sort of thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> you paid a lot. What have you paid to be here? What has Diana paid to be there? But yeah, yeah, there's royalty somewhere, not anywhere near you. Like, cause I just love Diana. I mean, who doesn't? That's that scene is so good. Hot mess express. Uh, my best episode of already said is Mumu for me. Mine as well. It? Okay. Also, also Mumu. E- pretty easily, I think of the, yeah. the first. I would rank them three, one, two. Pretty clearly, yeah. I think, yeah. from this bunch. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We're not big carriage racing enthusiasts, it seems. Um, Just MVP. seems dangerous. I was waiting yeah. the whole time they, t- they, they fill up and Fanny took that first stroll. I was like, are the wheels about to fall off? Are we going to tumble into this little like puddle of water here? What? But no. It's going to happen to her bangs. She's also a big watch, I have to say. Okay. Uh, MVP of the first three episodes. Are you going with a performer or a character? I haven't decided. <laughs> So I have kind of like my answer and then my, wait, is this just going to be my answer every pod we do for all of season five? And is that okay? Which is Vicky. Like, even though these aren't the most Diana-heavy episodes, like, astonishingly magnetic in every single second of screen time. Right? It literally, I promise you, it does say Debicki in my notes, even though I was like, am I going to change my mind at the last minute? Because you also said Debicki, uh, then I'll say Salim Da, who plays Muhammad, like Great just one. for, you know, like Great one. just jumps off the screen uh, in, in all of this. But, but Debicki, I mean, she's going to, spoiler, she's going to be the full series MVP, no problem. No, it, it'll walk. Um, all right. Uh, was that a sports reference? I think so. Okay. Uh, that, <laughs> that does it. <laughs> For episodes one through three of The Crown, we'll be back, as I said. Thanks, of course, to the great, you know, Prince of Our Hearts, Steve Allman, for uh, producing this episode. We'll see you later. Yeah. Bye. Steve the Abdicator. He's not going to be here <laughs> next episode. Ugh.